this is Ben Smith, I'm a photographer, and this is my podcast, A Small Voice, Conversations with Photographers. Thanks for listening. Hello people, this is Ben, this is my podcast, A Small Voice Conversations with Photographers. Welcome along for episode 107. I'm very pleased to say that my chat this week is with the esteemed British landscape photographer Simon Norfolk, who I will introduce properly after a couple of sponsor messages, just two this week. So bear with us. Um, also, don't forget, if you're a regular listener and you think that the podcast is worth the price of a cup of coffee per episode, so that's like five quid a month would be £2.50 per episode, so less than a cup of coffee. Also, just translate that into whichever currency is your local one. Then please do sign up for a small recurring monthly subscription, or if you prefer, make a large occasional donation at bensmithphoto.com slash smallvoice. Please do leave a positive review on iTunes. Um, there's always room for more reviews on iTunes so that others may find out about it. And if you do happen to need a new website, then let me know, come to me. I will use the Squarespace platform to build you a spanking new one so that you do not have to be asked. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by the excellent finder.me, that's F-I-N-D-R.me, which is a two-sided marketplace for imaging professionals, providing clients with direct access to thousands of experienced photographers on a single platform, and in turn introducing photographers to hundreds of potential clients. Finder connects photographers with relevant customers based on location, and type of photography services offered. Photographers can sign up quickly and easily and most importantly for free for corporate contracts at fixed rates or they can set their own pricing to attract direct clients and in stark contrast to some of their larger competitors and I know I always say this but it is a point worth making they do care about you, the photographer they are committed to transparency in the way they do business so it's for everyone really in the photography business from wedding planners to artists and if you are a photographer regardless of whichever type of photographer you may be go and open an account start filling out your profile you don't have to do it all at once and open up a whole new way of finding new work, finding new clients, and finding new opportunities. Join up for free at finder.me and get found. Sorry about the voice, I think it's hay fever or something. This episode of the podcast is also brought to you by the Charcoal Book Club, the first and only book of the month club dedicated exclusively to photo books. Each month, Charcoal works with the most respected names in contemporary photography to select a first edition monograph that is a must-have for every collection. Each book arrives signed by the artist along with a note card and a print from an esteemed guest curator with free shipping to the US, Canada and the UK. All that, along with members-only pricing in their online bookstore and more, makes the Charcoal Book Club the best and most exciting and coolest and most awesome way to stay up to date with essential work in contemporary photography. I'm very happy to say that this month's book is one I mentioned last time. Before I had any idea I was going to be getting it free from Charcoal, or part of my plan with Charcoal, that's Elf Dahlia by Maya Daniels, previously of this parish, of course. Maya's chat can be found on episode 13 in which she talks about the early stages of that book project. So really looking forward to getting that one. So Simon Norfolk who was born in 1963 in Lagos, Nigeria. He is a landscape photographer whose work over 20 years has been themed around a probing and stretching of the meaning of the word battlefield in all its forms. 
As such, he is photographed in some of the world's worst war zones and refugee crises, but is equally at home photographing supercomputers used to design military systems or the test launching of nuclear missiles. Time's layeredness in the landscape is an ongoing fascination of his. His work has been widely recognised. He has won the Discovery Prize at Arles in 2005, the Infinity Prize from the International Centre of Photography in 2004, and he was winner of the European Publishing Award in 2002. In 2003, he was shortlisted for the Citibank Prize, now known as the Deutsche Bourse Prize, of course, and in 2013 he won the Pre-Pictet Commission, and he has won multiple World Press Photo and Sony World Photography Awards. Simon has produced four monographs of his work, including Afghanistan, Chronotopia, in 2002, which was published in five languages. For most of it, I have no words, 1998, about the landscapes of genocide, and Bleed, 2005, about the war in Bosnia. His most recent is Burke and Norfolk, photographs from the war in Afghanistan, 2011. He has work held in major collections, such as the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston, the Getty in Los Angeles, as well as the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, the Wilson Center for Photography, and the Sir Elton John Collection. His work has been shown widely and internationally from Brighton to Ulaanbaatar and in 2011 his Burke and Norfolk work was one of the first ever photography solo shows at Tate Modern in London. He has been described by one critic as the leading documentary photographer of our time, passionate, intelligent and political. There is no one working in photography that has his vision or his clarity. I would probably go along with it. I very much enjoyed meeting and chatting to Simon and I'm very glad he agreed to do it because back in the day when I first started this podcast... He was obviously on my wish list, and when I inquired of those in the know as to whether they thought Simon would talk to me, they said, no. So I was always hoping to one day add his name to the Small Voice roster, and now I have. I'm really glad I have. Enjoy this one, Simon Norfolk. This is not even my house, by the way. Bring that nice and close. Is it not your house? No, it's Mrs. Norfolk's house. Oh, okay. So it doesn't count as your house. (laughs) You're Uh, married. Yes. Um, um, she came with the house, or the house came with, with her? Is that what no, you say? actually, we both moved into this house together. Okay. Uh, because she was living across the way uh, when I met her. Um, well, she has her own career, and um, uh, I've always thought of this as her house. Mm. I have a house in Brighton. Oh, you do? Right, right. That's okay. my house. Okay, so that's your house. This is her house. That seems that seems like it's nice, nicely delineated and, uh, and simple. Yes. Well, she, she had a you know she, she has a big career. She's a, she's a big she's a big deal in what she does. She's, she's a right. doctor, right? Uh, yes, she's a surgeon. Uh, she's a surgeon specifically. Yeah, a hand surgeon. She's a hand specialist. Ah, okay, okay. So she she works in which hospital? St Thomas's. Ah, uh, okay, which is a big teaching hospital here in London. Uh, yes, yeah. For my listeners who are, uh-huh. you know, uh, in Kansas well, she's City. She's a plastic surgeon, but for your listeners in other countries, yeah. plastics does not mean cosmetics in no. this country. Plastics means soft tissue. That's that's fascinating. So, Well, that's actually part of what we're talking about, because she does an uh, extremely serious, what I call, real job. Right, right. yes. Uh, and that's all part of this perspective that I have, which is that what I do seems to be really rather trivial. Yeah. And you say that, you know, you want to do an interview with me because, you know, you've done 150 of them and I ought to be in that. But it always seems to me that uh, there's a lot of sound and fury about photography and patting each other on the back and making each other professors and giving each other awards and la di da. And yet at the same time, my wife is in an operating theatre right now, sewing somebody's hand back on. 
Right, yes. And, yes. I, and I am in the coloured paper business. I make coloured pieces of paper, which is kind of ridiculous. Okay. Yes, but you are being slightly self-deprecating in the sense that, you know, you, you're not a banker. Uh, you're not shuffling money from... from <laughs> I wish I was. <laughs> I know, exactly. We all wish we were, uh, a, in terms that of... That would the, be an actual contribution to the British economy. The financial remuneration. <laughs> but it wouldn't be that, would it? Because you it's, it's, uh, you're just shuffling, you know, kind of virtual money from one, you know, bank account to another. And it's all, it's all smoke and mirrors, isn't it? Um, I wouldn't mind if photography didn't kind of, you know, coat itself in this kind of back-patting, you know... Here, have a prize. You've done well. I've done well. Aren't you great? I'm just a great. Here, have a prize. Um, you know, it's just uh, everything is so fucking marvellous, you know. Mm. So you get uh, and, uh, and the more The more I hear of that, the more annoyed I get with it all because it just seems so uh, shallow, you know. Mm. Um, and in particular, uh, audiences. You know, what are the audiences for things? Mm. You know, you can win a prize with a book. How many people read that book? Uh, a how, photo how, book how many people? Know. Yeah, how many people hear about these things? You know, you're <clears throat> you're a big, big fish in a fucking tiny little pond. Right, it is a very rarefied little little incestuous world, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And, and just increasingly, I just get fed up with that. Really, you know. Mm. Yeah. Well, there was a time when, you know, things were very different because newspapers and magazines with very big circulations you know, which was seen by the general population were, you know, a place where photojournalism was seen. Back in the glory days of Life magazine and all that, it was a, you know, an amazing thing to open your publication and see images from halfway around the world, you know, some extraordinary war zone or whatever. Now, who gives a shit, you know? Well, I'd, I'd, I'd never refer to those things as glory days, yeah. You know, you, you look back and you see something like Larry Burroughs on the cover of, of, of Life magazine in Vietnam, but the political price that was paid to get in those outlets was, was tremendous in terms of it being circumscribed by the politics of the owners of those corporations and the, the politics of the advertisers in those corporations. So, you know, if you go back and look at what a Life magazine wrote and wrapped around those photographs, uh, it's the same old, you know, right-wing bullshit that you see in an American magazine today. You know, uh, mm. there's no such thing as a left-wing American newspaper, aren't they? They mm. simply aren't. There never has been, mm. pretty much. So um, the the price that was paid for those glory days was particularly high, which was an a, a tremendous amount of kind of political castration in order to get into those places. Yeah, yeah. We, we were very fond of subtracting the photography from its context and putting them into the coffee table books, and then it looks marvellous. But when you go back and read them in the original source, you know, if you go and read, see what was written next to Don McCohen's pictures in the Sunday Times, it's just the same old Sunday Times shite that you see written in an article in the Sunday Times nowadays. And I would be pretty worried about putting anything of mine of value in the Sunday Times because it's a piece of right wing shite. I wouldn't wipe my ass with it. So. Mm. And that's always been true. There's no golden age in that respect. Yeah, I guess I, I was just really meaning in terms of the fact that at least, you know, the wider population were being exposed to these images that, you know... Yeah, but, were, you know, where is that wider population now? You know, they're not, they're not reading the Sunday Times because it's not it's, it's well, exactly. dying on its legs. But they are looking at BuzzFeed and they are looking at Instagram and they are looking at 
Snapchat, mm. uh, you know, and uh, there are, you know, interestingly, I think, interestingly, some absolutely massive photographers around nowadays. Um, uh, and, and they barely come across you and I's horizon mm. because they don't show at the photographer's gallery and they don't win World Press Photo, but they do have a million followers on, on YouTube and they do have, you know, 1.2 million followers on Instagram. Mm. You know, have you, have you heard of Joey L.? No. Oh, he's a fucking legend. <laughs> really? <laughs> but he's 25 and he's, you know, he's got, he's got 900,000 followers on Instagram. So, I mean, there is, a, there is a huge photography thing out there. It's just this rather narrow band of kind of snobby up its arse photography has kind of um, wandered away from it, you know. Yeah. This, this used to be where the currency was in the photographer's gallery and, you know, in the, in the, in the prizes and the shows and stuff. And, and nowadays it's become a sort of um, self-referential kind of clusterfuck, really. Mm. So you get impatient with that. Well, I just think, I just wonder what, what else is going on, you know. I, I don't like Joey Hell's work, but I think it's kind of interesting that he's, you know, and anybody under the age of 25 is going to know who he is, and he's not going to know anything about me. What the hell would they know about some old fellow that went to Afghanistan once, you know? Mm. So it just makes me feel a little bit, it's just a kind of colossal imbalance. Mm. You know, it's like it's like all the schools that we have in this country that are teaching photography, but they're all teaching the same. They're just teaching this very, very narrow band of art photography because it is teachable and it's very, very cheap to teach, mm. uh, you know, because it's very theory-led and, you know, uh, the tutors all come from the same kind of backgrounds. And so they're all teaching each other about themselves. Meanwhile, an entirely separate photography is walking off over the horizon, taking money with it and some talent and some incredibly weird ways of looking at the world, you know, incredible cliches. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, certainly economically, it's really thriving. Mm. You know, you mm. want to make a living as a photographer, don't make a photo book, right? <laughs> don't no. make a fucking photo book, right? It's a dead end. You want to make a living as a photographer, get advertising beach towels on Instagram because there's a lot of money to be made doing that. You know, get get advertising hotel resorts. You know, have you heard of a photographer called Thomas Heaton? But he's the mm. biggest landscape photographer in the country right now. Because but, he has a big uh, social that. media following totally, and that's how yes. he So is there some... And, he's a, and he's a, he seems like a nice lad and a pretty decent photographer. Yeah. But he won't be showing the photographer's gallery and he won't be winning... A, he won't be getting a show at uh, Photo London and he won't be winning some Lardyar art prize either. Mm. The person that winning the Lardyar art prize has produced a book last year that sold 1,500 copies. Yeah. It's kind of weird, isn't it? Yeah, but we are in a weird, is it a transitional phase, do you think, to, from one thing to another? No, it's transitional. I think it's kind of shattered. Is there an, is there an optimistic um, reading of how things, you know, could go from here, whereby, you know, that leverage that you can create with a big social media following can be used you know, in a in in a positive way? Well, I think it is, an, it, it is quite positive. It's just that I always try and think about photography and compare it to other media. And and what is its trajectory? Maybe the kind of... There was a time when photography, I think, was, was quite a sort of voice of something that was powerful, it was radical, it pushed, it pushed ideas along. And I have a feeling that might be behind us. But, I mean, that was also true of printmaking, Right. In, in, in Moscow in 1925, printmaking was the way that you got ideas into the world. In Paris in 1968, you wanted to get an idea out there. You started making 
uh, lithographs and churning them out on, on roniostats and, and xerostat machines. And, and, you know, you'd slap them up on the street. That's how you got an idea into the public medium, you know, a meme of an idea, a simple, punchy advertising slogan about what you felt about politics. Uh, nowadays, printmaking is, you know, brown-fingered old men, uh, you know, uh, uh, passing stuff around at craft fairs. You know, it's totally lost its vitality Mm. Uh, and have become rather incestuous and rather self-serving, you know, mm. just themselves talking to themselves. Uh, and uh, maybe that's kind of where photography has got to. And maybe the interesting stuff has moved on to Instagram, has moved on to Snapchat, where there is some really amazing stuff going on. It's got its own aesthetic. It's got its own finances. It's got its own superstars. And, you know, short of Joey L being made professor of photography at the London College of Communication or, uh, you know, Harvard, which he's not interested in, because why would he be? He's making loads of money shooting what he does for Instagram, advertising beach towels and bikinis and five-star hotels. And, you know, he just shot an ad campaign for the India Tourist Board. Mm. I, I, I doubt he's heard of me. And it's kind of, you know, you've never heard of him. Mm. Yeah, yeah. You, exactly. Your paths will never cross. And he's never going to come back here. He's never going to accept a post as a professor of, you know, media theory at some Lardida university. Why should he? You know, he doesn't know anything about it. Mm. Uh, it seems to me that he's marching off over the horizon and we're sat here uh, thumbing our way through short edition, you know, photo zines and yeah. stuff like that and patting each other on the back at how marvellous our book dummies were and stuff like that. But, I mean, what, what if the, you know, the young the young kind of socially concerned photographer, to use a sort of cliche, uh, were to combine young Joey's uh, capacity or abilities to build that big an audience with a more politicised approach to photography then maybe you've got something going that, on. That would be very exciting. But, you know, is, is, is that a set of skills that he's going to learn by doing an MA at the LCC? You've got to be fucking kidding me. Mm, right? I don't know. Well, you are... it by sticking his nose in a load of theory books. So you're quite, you are quite or, critical. Or wandering around, wandering around the photographer's gallery, scratching a chin at the entrance into the Deutsche Börse Wars because there's nothing there for that person. Mm. There's nothing there to feed that activity. Right? There are kids coming out of, uh, you know, schools with uh, with uh, MAs in pho- in photography and in, in art photography, who don't even know how to use an Instagram account. Mm. Right. So and, you, yet, it, and yet, the most interesting action is taking place over there. They're not even fucking aware of who the superstars are and who the motor drivers. It's really interesting that the uh, you know big national newspaper in this country did a big thing about photography and Instagram. You know, where's it all going? And it consisted of an article about which art photographers use Instagram to dump their outtakes. Right. That that was the so take. It was the point. unbelievable that one of our best critics did a thing, and it was which Instagram photographer, which you know, like uh, oh, um, Stephen Shaw uh, put some of his outtakes on Instagram. Right. right. Fuck you. you totally, totally missed, missed the, the point. point yeah. Right? yeah. Meanwhile, Joey L is disappearing off the, over the horizon with an entire aesthetic uh, uh, discipline, uh, disciples. Uh, 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 you know, he has a way of making money. I, I don't like his work. But the guy's successful. He's mm. more fucking successful than Stephen Shaw, quite frankly, who is the voice of the 1980s, feels mm. to me right, right, a little right. bit. You know, and so am I. Yeah. But so, like, given all this, how do you manage to remain motivated then? Because, well, you, know, I'm not, I'm, I, I, you know... I'm not interested in ingesting any en- energy in, in making another book, for example. I, get, I gave up on photography books. Ten years ago, I lost faith in the whole idea of the photography book. Right. It's just vanity publishing as far as I'm concerned. If you're paying to make a photography book, 
you're a vanity publisher, just like, you know, some novelist printing his own book. Uh, you know, they're just coffee table books. Who can afford these kind of prices? £60 for a book, you know, £45 for a book. Who's, who's reading these books? The kind of people that can afford £45 for a book. Well, what is that audience? It's automatically middle class people like yourself. Mm. Um, I can't uh, afford £45. No, me neither. I, have, I own very few photography books because they're really expensive. Most of the ones I own are yeah. um, ones that were given to me. Yeah, me too. Uh, I mean, and, that's, and my I mean, house doesn't contain many photography books because if, if I have a bit of a rule, which is if it's good, I give it away. Right, right. right? The only ones that are left in this house are the crap ones. <laughs> uh, so the thing, the thing that we did two years ago was, uh, you know, with the help of uh, Jamie Marshall, who works with me, is we sat down and said, if we want to know how these new social media work, then we will need a laboratory to run the experiments and the laboratory has to be a social media following. Mm. And due to some weird little things, we, we built an Instagram. And now I have 145,000 on Instagram, which is apparently, you know, top 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 1% of all the Instagrams in the world. Yeah, that's incredible, especially so, if it's only and been And now two we years. can maybe do something with that. Maybe we're, now let's try and use that to do some things because it's, I can't sell beach towels. It, mm. It's not going to work with my, you know, my... Brand, ethos, yeah, brand, brand. Well, ethos is the Ponce word. Brand right. is the real word. Yeah, yeah. No, because you do have a brand. I mean, yeah. yeah I guess every that photographer is, does, but yeah. but you you won't catch them fucking dead describing it as such because yeah. it would be art suicide, wouldn't it? Well, because it would it feel is. tainted by of commerciality. Course, of course, of course. But it is a brand, yeah. And I, and I can't sell you know bikinis through Instagram. Here I am, courtesy of you know luxury five star resorts in Bali. Yeah, yeah. It's not going to work for me. So, but you, maybe I can do something else. You know, maybe I could use this Instagram. To, to produce some other kind of thing. And, and my other career, you know, as an editorial photographer, is also slowly walking over the horizon because the money that is just not there in that business mm. any longer. It's not possible to get $10,000 assignments out of the New York Times as it was 10 years ago. And I'm not going to go to Syria for 2,000 bucks. Mm. I'm not going to terrorise Mrs. Norfolk and take those risks for 1,300 quid out of the Guardian if I'm lucky. Yeah. Right? So I have to find some other ways to, to do the stuff that I do. It's quite expensive doing what I do. Yeah, of course. Well, you're quite fortunate in the sense that you do quite a lot of work for National Geographic, which is one of the very few publications that still has a decent budget. Yes, although even those, it's like a shrinking pond. You know, there's less work there. There's a lot of competition and the budgets are getting smaller and smaller. Mm. Uh, and certainly the glory days there were gone before I've done. So I do do some work for Geographic, but uh, it, it's it's quite occasional. It's mm. quite in, It's quite intense when I do it. And they last a long time. It might take months and months. I mean, I've been working on one now, which started last October. But I'm not, I don't get paid for every day I work on it, of course. No, of course, It just yeah. absorbs every day's hard disk space, gets taken up by dealing with it. But, um, uh, and interesting that this current one, ah, oh, well, I can't talk about that because it's the current one, but oh, okay. we have some problems. When's that uh, likely Christmas. to see the light? Okay, Christmas, okay. If ever. If ever. Well, let's, <laughs> fingers crossed. I'm, I'm hoping uh, for the best. <laughs> when you turn the tape machine off, I'll tell you. Okay, yeah, the, no, fair what enough. The, what the problem is there. But it's not, it's not a million miles away from the problems that we're talking about right now. Right. But you very deliberately set about building this Instagram following, which yeah. is interesting to me. And, yeah. and, and you did it in a very sort of... Uh, deliberate way, you know, very... Totally, yeah. Uh, and and, and invested a lot of time and effort in doing it because I wanted to run some experiments. But you can't say, oh, I wonder if I could, you know, there are photographers out there who 
a photographer like Thomas Heaton, for example, who's a really good landscape photographer who's big on YouTube. Um, he puts up YouTube videos every week about giving tips and advice about his stuff. Yeah, I'm sure he makes quite a good living from workshops. I'm sure he gets a lot of equipment for free. I'm sure he gets a lot of camera gear for free. Uh, he probably does assignments off the back of his YouTube presence. Um, so, you know, maybe I could do something like that. Mm. But you can't even ask the question if you don't have the following. It's, you can't ask it in the abstract. You've got to suggest to your following on YouTube, wherever it is, would you be interested in paying for me to mm. to mentor you? You know, some, some photographers right. I know are making money as mentors. Some photographers are making money through things like Patreon. Have you heard of a website called Patreon? Yeah, very much so. Right, okay. Well, so, yeah. so maybe Patreon is a, is a model for some people. You know, it seems to work. Some people want to sail around the world for the, for the next year and, and post pictures of it. Yeah, well, we're all money. trying to figure that this new landscape out and yeah. find out how to how do we make money now how do we make a living yeah and, and you know we're talking about it for the most part just generally paying the bills you're i mean you and you've you're in that way kind of fairly typical in the sense that you have a number of different revenue streams and that always, seems to always work well for you it's a necessity you know we're right at the beginning of my career when i was really starting out and i was working for the telegraph i remember the telegraph had a big shakeout of their staff photographers and there were all these old fellas there that had been with the same newspaper for 30 years and they all got the shtum one friday afternoon mm. and i remember thinking there and then never rely on any of these fuckers it doesn't matter how nice they are to you tomorrow they could just shaft you in the back and those and those old fellas were just sent off the next friday that was it mm. it's all gone they were all replaced with agency photographers yeah so i always swore that i would have a fingers in at least several pies because I, I didn't trust anybody it wasn't some great commercial nows on my part it's just i'm deeply distrustful of the market yeah yeah uh, and you don't and, want all your eggs in one basket yeah and things just change too fast you know i mean there are newspaper photographers that you know never worked ever again there are people that were, had you know Stock libraries, you know, I've got those people that spend forever keywording and putting stuff into um, what was that big stock agency called uh, that, that was bought up by Getty? Uh, oh, there's been a, n a number, of yeah. Them. There was the, the one that was here in the UK, it was named after a guy, uh, I forget, anyway. Uh, you know, and and uh, people were making transparencies, and I remember going up there handing over transparent, you know, original transparencies, and they were being duped for yeah. the dupe library and stuff. Yeah. Uh, and all of that work is just completely wasted, you know. AI can do it in three minutes, in, in 10 seconds now. It can keyword your picture for you. You can say tree, green tree, France, spire church, right. blue sky, little boy, balloon. You know, it can do it all for you, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But some people spend days on end on that. I mean, invested a lot of money in that. Mm. So I was always very nervous about that. And I've always tried to have a, a bit of a sort of spread, you know, but it was out of just a deep sense of cynicism about Yeah. But what, well, what happened with you, with you, I imagine, was not something you would have anticipated in those early days, which was that you sort of transitioned into, essentially into landscape photography from, from what I guess we could broadly call a photojournalistic yeah. start. And as a result, you now sell prints. Mm. Uh, you know, I you know less than I used to. Right. Well, you, well, you certainly have done yeah. some of that. I don't know if that is that is that something that. You know, it's kind of almost surprising to you, even now, uh, that that's the way things ended up. Going. Oh, I, I was I was very surprised that I made that move across when yeah. I did in like sort of two thousand two three or whatever it was, and I started getting represented by galleries. I was always kind of like, why do they want my stuff? Mm. I mean, I was always driven along by a slight feeling that 
my stuff's better than most of the crap that they've got in these museums and art galleries. I always despise most of what I saw. So I thought, well, why shouldn't my stuff be in there? It's not that bad. Um, but I never really understood. I mean, I never described myself as an artist. I'm, mm. not, I'm not an artist. Right. And, and I'm afraid photography is not an art. Really? I don't think so. So you're not comfortable with that? No, I never, I never use that for my description. And I don't believe most of what I see that is described as photographic art is art. It's not. Mm. The Sistine Chapel is art. Mm. Right? The Eisenheim altarpiece is art. Uh, some little photo book about, you know, experiences with your girlfriend or how sad you are about the dust on the windowsills in grandma's house after grandma died and you went round and took some pictures of a dead fly on the windowsill. It's not art. I'm sorry, mate, it's not. <laughs> so... Uh, uh, I, you know, I was always a little bit astonished at always that, and I always treated it rather gingerly. Whilst mm. the sun was shining, you want to give me all that money? Fine, I'll, go, I'll use it. I'll use it to go out and make trouble. Well, you're, you're but at the same time, I never, I never built up a big kind of lifestyle to go with it. You know, and uh, you know, there's a book there on the shelf of a friend of mine, a photographer, who is always coming to me and saying, "Oh, Simon, I wish I could do what you do. I'm so trapped in my world of, you know, I have to, you know." Just do, 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 pay attention to all these bullshit advertising clients and stuff and then i say to him well why don't you just cut loose mm. right just like sell the fucking lot and buy a camper van and feck off and he's like oh well you know right. uh, well, i'd lose, I'd yeah, lose my producer to, i'd lose yeah. my full-time retoucher i'd lose my beautiful studio in shoreditch uh, you know i'd lose my clients and it's very hard to give I, I need, that stuff up i need once to you've got i it. need to turn over 200 grand a year to, to like you know keep my head above water and it's like well you made yourself a golden cage exactly and a long time ago not that long ago i was living above a turkish restaurant in stoke newton in a one-bedroom flat and i was happy yeah right i was happy at that time and I can go back to that. Yeah. If you if you don't think you can go back to it, then you built yourself a kind of golden cage out of your mortgage and your school fees and your alimony payments, all the rest yeah. of it. And I've always been very, very reluctant to run up any of those things. I, I you know, I don't have alimony payments because, unfortunately, I love my wife. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, yeah. I, for example, I never had lots of, I never had children because I didn't really right. think I had enough money. Right. Even when I had money, I didn't really believe that it would stick around long enough for me to, you know. Mm. Uh, support those uh, expenses mm. because I always thought if you if you need to dial it down um, that has to be an option otherwise you're in a cage yeah absolutely no I, I, I kind of so relate to this because I mean I'm I'm sort of still in that position where you are now in the kind of one bedroom flat in Stoke Newington or in Dalston um, and you know I, I it sucks in a way but at the same time I, I'm not afraid of anything. Like you know, if I had right, to, good. if I was your mate, having to make two hundred grand a year, yeah, that's fucking like, terrifying. Fucking hell! Absolutely, you yeah. Know, that, that's you've really put yourself in a position. And no wonder you don't want to change anything because how are you gonna, how are you gonna then suddenly go back to that? You know, then you, for someone, uh, for that person, like fifty grand a year, which to me seems like a lot, would be like. A quarter of what you need just to break even. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But his, but his, but his heart is broken because he knows that he's having to do crap to make that right, kind of money. So of course, he's not he doing, has to do crap. Yeah. He's doing you know advertising stuff day in day out. I mean, superb, best of the, you know, best of the of, of his school. But uh, there's a bit of him's kind of dying, you know. Mm. And I always wanted to keep free of that. That's the real optimistic thing that I have, which is that, you know, I want to sort of get to the end of my career and think. Uh, I didn't do any shite. <laughs> right. That would be a wonderful thing to have on your epitaph. <laughs> well, I, you know, Simon I used Norfolk, to think I could start shite. a fucking revolution. Nowadays, my world has kind of shivelled down to the fact that I want to kind of get through to the end and not feel that I 
kissed ass mm. and made compromises in anything that I made. Mm. I'd rather not make anything and go back to a, a one-bedroom flat over a Turkish r- restaurant than um, produce something that I'm, I'm uh, ashamed of. Yeah, I don't think I don't think yet I've done anything that I'm ashamed of. No, I, 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 I want my wife to stay in love with me, and I want her to like the man that she's married to, and I think for that to continue, then I think I have to like myself, right, and not feel ashamed of myself, uh, and that means that I have to live a life that I can stand by. Mm, mm, absolutely, yeah. Sorry, these are rather grand philosophical things but i've been thinking a lot about these things nowadays you know what is what what is what is happiness made out of and even what is freedom made out of mm. you know we talk about wanting to live a life that's free that we do the things we do in order to be free but what what is freedom made out of is it made out of 200 grand a year to pay all those staff and that lovely studio and your beautiful apartment and your school fees and the rest of it or is it freedom about be able to say fuck everybody i'm going out for a bike ride yeah 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 you know there's that expression fuck you money like if you're so wealthy you get to a point where you you know you have a certain amount of money that you can just tell everyone fuck you well i what, the, what my kind of f- philosophy is that almost like having just enough and and not caring is almost as good as having fuck you money it's the other side of the of the of the same coin exactly, in a way exactly exactly I don't, and i've met some ultra wealthy people through what i've done and i cannot comprehend what motivates them mm. it, well it's yeah, lovely if, to if be you, rich let's face it, it i mean nice i would rich, know, but, but it I mean, must be but, nice but to me like you know five million quid is like really rich right and that is really and if rich. i had five million quid fuck that's the last you see of me right yeah. I, i'm not going to go to the fucking office on yeah. monday morning but no. these, these guys have got a hundred million quid and they're still not sure it's enough and then they still go to the office on the next day and, and they're still you know fighting and 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 getting riled up about you know the next right. thing and the next thing oh, that it's is like, insane and it's and i don't understand that and all the photography collectors are all in that category right which right. for me is psychosis right i mean that's just that's a mental illness yeah, yeah. I don't understand. I don't understand the difference between a really rich guy and a mentally ill person. <laughs> but if you've got $100 million and you're still working, you're a fucking head case as far as I'm concerned. And the day I make my <laughs> five million and one quid is the last you'll ever see of me because yeah. I'll be on a fucking farm in France growing my own vegetables <laughs> right. and that's the last you'll hear from Simon. Yeah, yeah. Or wherever because, I mean, five million quid is enough. I mean, I you know, could quite easily that's live it. on that. Tune out. Um, times yeah, 10. Yeah, put it in the fucking building society and goodbye. Yeah. But I suppose part of the personality traits that you may have to have in order to get to that 100 million quid ah, is what okay, it's an interesting question so uh, were they mad before they started right. did, did making all that money make them mad or do you have to be mad in order to be greedy enough to want to make money well you have to be not even greedy but you have to have certain extraordinary traits that normal people don't possess i would imagine yes. massive amount of <laughs> <laughs> massive lack of self-awareness for yeah. the start of it I remember once there's a there's a trustee at the Fogger's Gallery and um, she's she's a nice lady but I, I turned up at something that I was surprised I was being given some money and so I put on a suit and she said oh you know Alex Simon you, know, you, look, you look nice in a suit and I said well I got married in this suit you know and she said oh did you get married today and I was like no I'm not not all of us just wear clothes just for once and then throw them out. I, 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 I has to, you know, do for a few things before I toss it in the bin. And I think she thought, I mean, it's just like a different kind of planet, you know, yeah, yeah. that you wouldn't ever turn up in the same thing twice, you know. Right. Whereas, I mean, I, I got married nine years ago. I'm still wearing that suit. Yeah. It's a good suit. Why, why not? Yeah. <laughs> it's got How often loads of miles it? Yeah. in it. Exactly. <laughs> it comes out twice a year, you know, and court appearances and yeah. <laughs> other and, people's weddings. Yeah. 
So I, I, I don't know. I, I, there's an interesting thing about you know money and happiness and, and where, what it's made of. You know, I think. Mm. Oh, it's really. I mean, it's important. You, actually. Don't, you don't actually need very much. The only problem, of course, is that you know you and I are going to live until we're ninety. Mm, hopefully, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and also, and, yeah, we've you know, got to think about uh, what that. do you do about that? You know, which is the only thing that I really worry about now. Yeah, me too. This sense of you know, I mean, we're roughly the same age, so I think yeah. we've got roughly the same concerns. I mean, there's from, there's a generation not, you know, 15 years behind us who have no savings, they have masses of credit cards, they have yeah. no, no pension, no, you know, they can't get uh, property. You know, you and I probably got property behind us. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, you know, what are these people going to do when they're 65? Mm-hmm. They're not going to be doing delivery, delivery, uh, you know. No. Yeah, and the and the and the you know yeah, I mean pensions and all that are going to be pretty much worthless. Terrifying, we're talking about terrifying. Sort of My nephews and nieces and stuff, you know, what, what on earth is there for them? You know, mm. my wife's niece, she's got a job in a soup in a in a big store in a big shopping mall, and she has two jobs in the same shop, mm. one in the morning and one in the afternoon, and she has to leave for an hour and then come back, and that way the shop doesn't have to pay her for her lunch. Jesus Christ! Right? So that, that, that's that's the kind of economy that these kind of you know, twenty-two-year-olds are going into. So how 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 are they going to save up for you know when they stop working at sixty-eight? But they're going to, you know, she's going to live until she's about one hundred and ten, probably the way things are going. Mm. So she's got to put forty money, forty years worth of money aside. How how sort of depressed do you get about the current sort of political climate? Does does it, <laughs> do you find it? <laughs> we started this recording about ten minutes before the recording. President Trump's helicopters flew over right. the house and shook the shook the bloody. Yeah. Lampshades. That's the kind of thing I'm referring to, yeah. I mean, do you manage to stay in any way? uh, Oh, yeah, no, I mean, uh, uh, I'm I'm very excited about a lot of stuff. I spent a lot of time with the, well, I spent a little bit of time down at the Extinction Rebellion thing. Quite frankly, I was lectured to by some 16-year-old, and it it was really quite interesting. Mm, mm. You know, just just looking at the way this kid looked at the world was kind of, like, really interesting. Yeah. uh, And... um, you know his attitudes about you know generosity and frugality and and things like that, but also um, the amount of fight that he had in him uh, was was quite inspiring in a way. Yeah. So yes, I mean I I, I feel very positive about a lot of those things, you know. Mm. But I, I I don't feel particularly positive about so and so's got a new photo book out and it won a prize. Right. You know, it's just, it seems so fucking important. Meanwhile, the, the fucking polar bears are dying. You know. Yeah. Which which one should we be interested about? Well, the thing I find is that, that when you talk about the, the climate change issue, then everything else tends to pale into insignificance because that is the one thing that is the the, the big unavoidable you yeah. know elephant in the living room, which is that we're all pretty much fucked. And who cares about you know anything if we're all going to be up to our necks in water, you know? But you've you've worked on that on that. A little bit, yeah, and it's, uh, I mean, that's one of the reasons topic. why it's taken more of my attention in, in recent time is because, you know, just, I don't know if I share Extinction Rebellion's feeling that they are the last generation or that, you know, the, I, I don't think we're fucked, but I think, you know, we are going to have to pay the colossal costs of this thing. Mm. Uh, and, and the Western world is the one that can afford it. And if you can't afford to build higher seawalls and if you can't afford to build... Uh, more and more, you know, solar power to offset your air conditioning costs because the climate is hot, then, you know, if you are living in Nigeria or living in Syria, uh, then you're going to move. Yeah. And we're going to have to deal with the consequences of that. And and the consequences of migration in the last few years has been shattering. And yet I would say that's just the beginning of it. Mm. You know, if you're a young lad growing up in Nigeria, 
or you're a young girl growing up in Syria, what are you going to do? Are you going to sit there and just tolerate or are you going to get on a boat and migrate? Yeah. And we will have to deal with the consequences of that. And we have not dealt with them very well. Mm. And it really is just the beginning of it. Yesterday, this weekend, there was a thing saying, 20 migrants were found in the English Channel this weekend. And I'm sure the people in Greece must be <laughs> cacking us. Like, 20? Yeah. We don't even notice when 20 turn up. <laughs> yeah. It's like 20,000 turn up. <laughs> yeah. Then we, then start, we, might, we might actually Then we get it. a bit panicked. You know, yeah. people in Lampedusa, 20? 20. 20? 20? 20. <laughs> right? yeah. We got 20,000 in like a month, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about that project you did, uh, the Mount Kenya mm. thing? Um, because that was a, a climate change project yeah uh, that was the topic and i have to say it wasn't something that i you know kind of generated really it was people that came to me and said have you thought about this you know do you want to turn what you do to this Mm. uh and it it was it was them really klaus klaus tuman from uh project pressure and john wyatt clark who's an ad agent here yeah 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 Uh, and and it was them that said you know stop spending all your time thinking about Afghanistan and try and think about this instead. Right. But where did the idea come from? Because we should explain what the idea was, and it was a very uh, interesting and kind of a creative hmm. notion that I presume came from you, which was to use fire as a way to kind of show... Uh, the extent of this, the, the, the regression of this gla- glacier. Yeah, yeah. And so it was an extraordinary thing. Maybe it'd be best if you just explain it in your own uh, terms and tell me how the idea came to you. Oh, well, I mean, I call that thing a pyrograph. You know, it sort of writes with fire, but it's, it was just a garden rake with some carpet attached to it, set fire to it. And then you just go for a long walk in the dark with the camera locked open. Right. And it draws a line, and the line showed where the glacier was in 1963 or 1954 or 1980 you could see the in the distance over there you can see where the glacier is now so it just visualizes that absence of the ice Mm. on this ice mass and and the glacier i chose was the lewis glacier on mount kenya which is kind of doomed it'll be gone in about 10 years it really is on its last legs Mm. so um uh well you know that i'm very good friends with paul Lowe. yeah and i spent a summer in sarajevo because that was I, i invented that idea as a way of trying to draw borders uh, and I was in, and I went with Paul, I went. Paul invited me out to Sarajevo, and I spent some time there trying to think about how would you. If you if you're from Sarajevo, you are acutely aware that this corner of this street is a place where you know sniper fire happened, or where there was a battle took place, or you know if you stood on this corner, you you would be shot by the artillery in the hills there because they could see you. And I arrive, I have no conception of that whatsoever, right? It's just completely blind to it. What year was this? No, uh, after the war. After well, the long war. after the war. Yeah, long, yeah. long after the war. It's the, right. you know, the, the, the thing that was so intensely felt, that, that division, that, that, that cleavage that was so intense, I have no conception of it. Mm. And, and the government have been quite keen to erase that from the landscape. You know, so there's not even that many broken buildings. Sorry, the cat is meowing in the background. That's, right. that's, uh, that's my little cat yes. shouting. He can meow. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, he can meow. Uh, so that idea that that, that, that those uh, marks, which was so intensely felt at one time, nowadays are indecipherable to me. Uh, and how could you do it? So I came up with various devices and I tested them in a, in a summer in Sarajevo, trying to work out how you could put dotted lines up the side of a hill or how you could put, you know, particularly a dotted line because that's a map maker's line, isn't it? You know, the hatched line. You know, right, that's, right. that's a sort of empire builder's line, isn't it? The hatched line across the desert that marks, you know, the difference between a French empire and the British empire. So I worked with all sorts of like la- dragging lamps about in the dark and picking lights up and putting them down and picking them, putting them down, and picking them, and putting them down, and you end up with a dashed line on the land. 
and I couldn't ever get anything to really work in in, in Sarajevo um, and so I just stashed the idea really I just stashed it for about mm. a year and a half and then when Klaus and John came along and said have you thought about trying to do something instead of going to Afghanistan all the time thinking about climate change uh, I thought oh that's, as it happens I've got a sort of 90% of a worked out technique just right. waiting for a kind of home you know yeah, yeah. I do this quite a lot nowadays kind of coming up with techniques and then kind of parking them and then waiting for a good application of the technique yeah. to come Yeah, well, along. that's why I ask, because I think it's fascinating to, to hear about, you know, how ideas uh, come up and then ah, and yes. then they get, you know, recycled in, uh, yes, at a later yeah. stage kind of uh, thing. And, and, uh, and just recently I've been working with this balloon of mine as well. Oh, you've done a thing with a balloon? Which is another new, goofy technique. Right, okay. That, that also was parked for like a year or two whilst it was waiting to find a decent... Uh, uh, a place where for me you know there's lots of stuff where you see where a technique is just used relentlessly I've, I've thought this up I'm going to do the damn thing again and again and again whereas for me the most satisfying is when the technique sits on top of the idea mm-hmm. in a really satisfactory and complementary way right and, right. and, and, and you have when to have the patience the, yes, the yes, two yes. things yeah there's a reason why you're doing this yeah. you know yeah. uh, and, and, and the uh, the flame line on Mount Kenya was perfect because then suddenly you had this not just a, a beautiful blue versus gold thing, which is always a palette that I work in as a landscape photographer, but also this idea of fire versus ice as a, as a central metaphor right the way through this thing. And that's a really lovely, rich, metaphorical mind to be Hugely. kind of to be chipping out from, you know. But also the fact that you use petrol and petrol yeah. is... Uh, well, yeah, actually, I didn't start out using petrol because I started out using paraffin and then, uh-huh. I, and then I started out... You know, thinking about lasers and, and stuff like that, and none of that was appropriate. Uh, and um, uh, uh, petrol was kind of something that I ended up with, mm. um, some ways. But then when I hit upon it, then it's it gives another it, it really rich because then it's about hydrocarbons and hydrocarbons. CO2, of course, yeah. yeah. But I, I started working with gas and, and paraffins and all sorts. You see, you say you see you say you don't think of yourself as an artist, but that to Not me art. seems like an artist's uh, and I'm very much in your camp you know I, I, I'm very down on people who you know bandy that word around because I think it's overused and, and especially in, in a, you know application to photography but all of those things and the exploration of an idea and the way that you carried it out you know it seems to me that you could legitimately call that art do you think my wife doesn't do it when she's working out with the other surgeons how she's going to, you know, put someone's finger back on? No, I, yeah, I think she probably does. So then does. it's just craft, isn't it? No, it's both. My, my father was a goldsmith mm. uh, and, a, and a clockmaker. And I don't think anything that I do in terms of problem solving is anything different than what he would do. But he was just called a craftsman. Yeah, I'm with you. I don't, I'm not I, I going just, to argue I, with you. I, I just think that's good craft. I don't think it's art. Mm. I think art is something, I don't know, I just... I, well, I, then know, we have to start talking I, I about really, what definition of art I really revere art, art. You know, I really hold mm. it in high regard. I think it's something, you know, the feelings that you get when you walk into that chapel in Palermo or, right. you know... Right, uh, I. Well, don't you like any modern art then? No. Ah, there you go. That might be part of the problem there. <laughs> yeah, but my idea of modern is uh, what nineteenth century onwards. Uh, oh no, I'd say about the death of Giotto. <laughs> About thirteen ninety is okay. my cut off. Anything right. after that is modern shite. Okay, <laughs> there, there's, there maybe lies the problem. <laughs> but so um. So you were you were out if there. If you in, go to the Pinateca in okay, in, in, in Siena, right? <laughs> a fantastic art gallery in Siena, and you go up to the top floor first, and then you come down, 
And the top floor is 11th century icons and 12th century altarpieces and diptychs and religious art and stuff that was produced out of this amazing sense of not a craftsman saying, oh, I need to, you know, square off a few problems and work out a technique. But it was somebody producing a piece of work because they thought that they would burn in hell for eternity. Right. It was not optional. I was not a right. professional artist fulfilling an assignment. I'm making this altarpiece because otherwise I will burn forever in hell. Mm. Uh, and when you come down the building in the Pinateca, you start in the 9th century and then the 11th and then you come to the, and then you can see the arrival of the professional artist. The name, first of all, you see the name, right? Because on the top floor, the artist is called the master of the so-and-so altarpiece. And then you look at it and it is the so-and-so altarpiece. The only thing we know about this person is he made this thing. Right, we know right. nothing else about this person's biography. And then you see biography arrive. Where the name of the artist there, we know when they're born and when they die, because they're professional artists. They complete assignments. They are available for commission. You give them money, they'll do it. They're not doing it because they fear that they're going to burn in hell for eternity or they have some amazing power driving them on. I've got more respect for some of these automatic artists who spend their entire house, you know, life covering the outside of their house in milk bottle tops or something. Because it seems to me that they are driven by something beyond themselves. Mm. If you're just fulfilling a commission, then it's just... Well, if you look at someone like Michelangelo, solving. though, I mean, he, you can't, you can't, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't too, he was quite tidy, wasn't he? You can't really whack him, but he was... He was, was, a, he was a, a eminently a, commissionable professional artist. Yeah, exactly. Who learnt his trade and would do anything that you paid him for. Right, yeah, and was quite wealthy as well. Always, you know, became... I don't so. know, I, I don't know, but, I, 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 you know, I don't think he was driven by a great kind of emotional fear or a sense of driven along. I think no, you, you could... You that's know. what I'm saying. But the work was I, decent. I, I, I just don't think what we do is anything on that scale. It just mm. seems so trivial no, and small definitely. compared to that. You know, I just think it's a different order of thing. And I, and I quite like to keep that word rather precious because I, like, I quite like the idea of art. Mm. But it's something which is driven by something much more powerful than uh, the Sunday Times pay me to do an assignment or, you know, I wanted to, you know, get a show mm. at the Doggers Gallery. Mm. These are not the motives for producing great art. Yeah. So you were up that mountain for like 18 yeah. days. It was quite, yeah. a, it was quite a tough... <laughs> It was so cold. <laughs> and it was cold and it was miserable. And I'm just and Miserable, miserable, yeah. miserable, miserable. And there was what? nothing to do. I Are remember you? one morning waking up and sitting outside and there was no wind and thinking, I can hear, I can hear like music really far away, like a beat, like a really far away concert or something. You know, it's, it's weird. There's no one around here. And I realized that I, I, I could hear my own pulse. Right, right. It, it was so quiet. It was so boring. I, I heard my own pulse inside my head. Are you quite resilient in those sorts of situations, though, or do you find it difficult? You know, I mean, like, what, what's your what's your self talk like in those uh, kind of uh, scenarios? Because mm-hmm. you know that in itself is, you know, it's a relatively challenging thing to have to do just to just to stick it out for yeah. that amount of time. Um, yeah, I think I'm quite good at that. I think because I started out as a photojournalist, which was a lot of you know grafting. Uh, and dashing about and having to like you know wangle stuff and uh, deal with uh, failures in you know in ideas and equipment and stuff like that and then quickly improvise mm. uh, and I think because I've worked in a lot of um, slightly uh, sketchier places where you know your big grand high tech. A solution is not going to work and you'll have to work out something that's made out of string and cardboard pretty quick mm. I, I always kind of like amaze myself because I don't really think that I am and then 
a long time ago I was a black and white printer and when I think about the days that I would spend to get I cannot believe that I was the person that was that tolerant when nowadays if the website doesn't load in three seconds I want to smash the laptop right right and yet some, you know, I used to spend a week getting a print right in the darkroom so yeah. I'm kind of always rather astounded at that maybe the modern world has made us all less less patient and less you know able to um, you know stick things out perhaps maybe yeah yeah but I, I like the fact that I spend a lot of time in, in, in sort of countries where you don't have all these props and stuff so you do have to re- resort to other things you know? yeah well you, you said I think that you got about what you got eight usable images out of in, on the on the mountain, that, it was seven, yeah, seven, yeah, seven, which is. Goes I think that there only were seven frames. It wasn't that there, were, there was only seven frames because you'd only shoot one a night, right, right, yeah. And so sometimes you, you'd leave it out all night, and the batteries would just go off, or uh, yeah. sometimes the mist would come in. So uh, quite a ri- you know quite a risky kind of job in the sense that the potential for failure was there. Uh, no, the risk was the fact that w- w- when you were on the mountain, uh, you spent all the money. <laughs> right because right. there was no other you couldn't save money by coming down from the mountain or whatever it was all the money went on getting up the mountain mm. so not yeah it wasn't just the the sort of like technical risk and stuff it was just the, the, all the money was gone so it was like if you go down then uh you'll never work for that magazine ever again. right yeah <laughs> well you delivered it you delivered in the end because uh, those I, seven i think they were a bit shocked that there wasn't images. more <laughs> yeah yeah but if they yeah perhaps they hadn't really th- thought about the uh, extent of the challenge kind of no, thing because um, yeah you were at like 5,000 no, no. metres but I mean I did test it I mean I tested I, I tested the technique in, in Brighton and then I panicked about altitude and thought the flame wouldn't burn I was worried, worried the flame wouldn't burn you know uh, altitude not enough oxygen yeah, yeah 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 uh, so I, t- I went to uh, Mount Teda in Tenerife because it was like the cheapest place to get to try very it. high in the air right. because it's just the cheapest nearby big mountain. Mm. It's 3,500 meters, Mount Tader, top of it. Uh, and me and a friend camped out on Mount Tader and just lit, set fire to stuff just to see if it burned. <laughs> so you did. It was a quite a lot of pre- preparation oh, yeah, for absolutely. that. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I was so nervous that I would get up there and then it just wouldn't work because I couldn't even go back and say, it didn't work, but here, have most of your money back. Right. It, all the money was gone. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was the worst situation. Thinking in terms of. Um you know, I guess having that, you, like you say, the old um, photojournalistic kind of instinct, because wh- when you're in, obviously you've worked a lot in Afghanistan, we haven't mm. even really touched upon that uh, yet, and, and um, I'd happily talk for another hour. But, um, yeah, you were saying, you, you know, you spent, spent a couple of weeks wandering around Kabul at a time when that was not considered uh, something that, mm. you know, one should do. And, that you know, you I've heard you mention that, you know, there were staff at the embassy who'd never been outside of their own compound. Yes. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk a little about that? What, what sort of inspires you to? Do you think it's important, basically, that you, you 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 know that you're out there and not stuck behind a wall in a compound? Oh, I, 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 I think um, the the embedding process. Mm. Uh, has been a really powerful process in terms of moulding and shaping what would otherwise be a bunch of Bolshevik, you know, Bolshe troublemakers uh, have been curved towards being producing nothing more than propaganda that the British, particularly the British Army, the American Army wanted. And, and the embedding process has done that. It has really snuffed out any kind of... Do you think that was always opposition. the intention behind totally, it? Totally, totally. Yeah. It was very uh, oh, considered. Oh, it works really powerfully. And I once did... I spent three days in the British Embassy in Kabul, kind of embedded in, in the British Embassy, which is at the time was the biggest embassy in the world. And uh, the 
emotional force that weighs down upon you, when all of these people have been nice to you and they've told you where stuff is and they've saved you bacon and uh, told you how to do it. Uh, And I mean, I, I knew why I was there to get a certain picture, which that man that's been nice to me the whole day will probably lose his job if I publish this picture. So how megalomaniac am I? I should think that my, what I'm doing is so freaking important that it's worth screwing someone else's career up for them. You have to have a long think about whether or not it's worth you doing it. Mm. And secondly, um, can I be enough of a bastard? It's quite emotionally, it's very difficult to do that. And I, I only thought that I did it because a bit older, I come with a, you know, a long kind of baggage of you know, political engagement in stuff that means that I'm not going to bin all that just because this man has been nice to me and these people sorted me out and that soldier told me where the toilet paper was on the day three Mm. and I didn't know where the loop paper and he told me and I could have kissed him you know uh, just little stuff like that now I haven't been in like a in a a tank that's come under fire where this 17 year old boy has returned fire and saved my bacon this was just a very low level sort of thing in the embassy but even so I felt the emotional kind of weight upon me to uh, conform and go along with it was was really quite amazing when Mm. you're sleeping in the same tent as these as, as lads you know 18 year old lads uh um, and eating with them and, you know, showering and, and the rest of it. It, it. it was very, very powerful, very, very powerful juju. And I, it was only because of where I come from that I felt able to resist it in a way. Mm. But if I was 23 and he'd said, oh, you know, do this, do that, and you'll get helicopter rides into the zone, you'll get, you know, you win the, you'll get to take the pictures that will win the World Press Photo and the rest of it, I would have so fucking caved in for all of that. Yeah. I would have so caved in. I would have desperately wanted it. And half the photographers are in these places want to be soldiers anyway, let's face it. Right. right. They're all want to be soldiers, aren't they? Look at the way they dress. <clears throat> you know, look at the way some of these photojournalists dress. They, you know, they look, look like special forces because yeah. sort of half of them kind of wants that they anyway. They dress in that, un- well, they adopt that uniform. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Literally that uniform. Oh, totally. And I remember, I remember Tony, right? He's a really good friend of mine, Tony Almos. Mm. Tony shot the, the video of, yes, of you at, yes. uh, in Mount Kenya. But, know, yeah, but Tony, Tony said something Tony to me. On the we both had a really interesting conversation. I think we both learned a lot from it, but... It, he said to me, oh, he did a thing for the Observer and he went out with Canadian soldiers. And he said, um, he said, we were on patrol in this village. I remember thinking, ooh, hang on, we. Right, well, what's that, what's that mean, we? Right, when you're, on the, when you're photographing a, a demonstration in the middle of London and they're throwing stuff, you don't say, we were throwing stuff at the police. You say, the rioters were throwing stuff at the police and I was observing it. Mm. But he said, we were on patrol in this village, you know. And it's, suddenly it's like, well, that's a bit kind of Stockholm Syndrome, isn't it? You don't say they were on patrol in the village and I was photographing them, mm. which is kind of what was happening. You said we were on patrol in the village. And I, 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 I learned a lot from that. Did you pull him up on that then at the time? Yeah, we had a long chat yeah. about it. Yeah, and, he, and, he, and even, you know, he realized too that it's like, wow, that's kind of weird. I didn't even notice that. Without, yeah, exactly. He said it without even no, re- realizing what he Absolutely not. It was just, you know, totally passed by. But that that we is, is really mm. powerful because that means all the... It's already over, right? When you, when you use a word like that, all of your resistance and your bullshitness and your outsiderness and your American objectivity thing that you're meant to be doing, you know, this stand outside, the journalist is absolutely, you know, must not be political and the rest of it. Mm. All of that's, it's already left the building when you say yeah, we. Because the embedding process has already encouraged a kind of camaraderie and a, and a connection with those yeah. troops that, in one way, it's kind of nice for the photographer to feel part of something. No, no, 
No. I mean, in terms of... You don't feel nice because you're connected with the police that are beating up the demonstrators. You don't feel nice because you're throwing stones at the police. You want to be distant, otherwise you can't make work. Right. Yeah. It's the basis of journalism, isn't it? No, I agree. I agree. But I'm putting myself in the position of that photographer... Um, you know, is in a very kind of hostile and unpleasant situation. You don't go there to make mates. No, true. Right? I'm not there to make friends. If they hate me afterwards, uh, that probably means I've done my job properly. Right? If you want to be liked, you're in the wrong game. When you first went to Afghanistan in, like, I think it was 2001 then, what was your, you know, mindset? What what did you go for? Why did you go? (sighs) And how did that transition? All the the stuff that I've ever done has always been kind of negative. It's never been like, you know, I had this idea. It was always, there was stuff that I was fleeing, right? So, you know, my hatred of embedded was because I, I saw, you know, what, I mean, he's a good photographer, but, you know, Benjamin Lowy did that, that book that was shot through the, the slit of a tank. And, and, and it just made me explode with fury, mm. you know, because I imagined Afghans seeing that book. How they would think of themselves as viewed through that slot, you know, as targets, mm. as, 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 as indecipherable other distance through this nine inches of fucking plexiglass. You know, what a way to look at the fucking world, at a, at a people. But I imagine them looking back, looking up at him, sticking his camera through that thing and not being able to tell which is a soldier and which is a photographer. So I, I sort of made the work in Afghanistan because I didn't want it to be that. I didn't want it to be Ross Kemp's, uh, you know, that fucking idiot British actor who's now reinvented himself as a kind of hard man documentary. Right, right. Who's like the most wannabe soldier that there possibly is. Yeah. Uh, and, he, and he uses their language and he uses all of their slang words and, and they're all his pals and the rest of it. And he, he represents their charities. Uh, you know, he does a bloody fun runs for old soldiers and the rest of it. I mean, it's, it's just comical that that's a kind of journal, journalism. Mm. Uh, you know, if a journalist does their job well, at the end of the day, everybody hates you. Right, right. Yeah, it means you've done your job well. Yeah. So uh, you, you. So went... I, I knew what I didn't want to do. That's all. That's the only thing I had when the first time I went to Afghanistan. I knew what I didn't want to do. I knew if I didn't take a little camera, I couldn't take little camera pictures. If I took a five four, I'd have to find something new to do. If I tried to, took a little camera, there were hundreds of other better connected, better photographers than me that could get their pictures back to New York and London and Paris faster than I could because mm. some of them even had these new. Uh, sat phones that were just coming through and digital cameras were just coming through I couldn't compete with that mm. so, so if, anyway, I, if, you I, went if the I other only way. took the other thing I would have to come up with something different mm. Interesting. that was the only thing I had it just a whole series of like negative models really mm. and out of that I produced something well very different new, new and interesting yeah. Yeah. yeah I can't lay claim to it being some great master plan on my part really. yeah yeah, yeah. And, and you know to, in, in reference to the aforementioned uh, point of um you know dressing uh oh. as you know you you made me laugh so much because you you mentioned that at one point that you know you'd happily dress as a clown <laughs> if, if you know if that were possible with yes. the big shoes and everything because <laughs> yes, yes. you want people to think that you're some kind of uh you know if, if people think you're just some of in, some innocent uh, nutter then they're probably not yes. going to shoot you yes yes totally totally it's like a bulletproof thing that's the only reason why i'm still here i think because mm. some of the scrapes i got into yeah. Uh, mostly with American soldiers, I've got to say, not with Taliban's. Right. Uh, there's one time, particularly in Baghdad, where you know, really, what happened? I was just walking up to this thing. I didn't know you know they were there, you know. And then they started to fucking completely freak out, uh, and um, you know, because I was walking towards them, 
uh, it's the place where the Saddam's arms are the sculpture with the two swords uh, yeah. at the top of it. And there was just tanks just parked up, you know. It wasn't even a green zone then. It was just like he just walked in, you know. And they were there making it into a base, and I didn't know. And I was just walking down the road, and these guys were freaking out in the air, in the air. Uh, and they made me take my shirt off. And, and I remember I was wearing this Larry shirt with Spider-Man on it. It was like a huge Spider-Man shirt bought in Dalston Market. Uh, and it was all taken off because they thought I was a suicide bomber walking towards them and the rest of it. And it was just, you know, and very, very nervous, mm. very, very agitated, terrified 19-year-olds with guns yeah. who've been told to they, they shoot anything what, that yeah, looks like a problem. They, they don't know what's coming. Yeah. But, so, I think, but I think if I'd been wearing combat trousers and I'd been wearing a, you know, a bandana and a big scarf and I'd had a wraparound black sunglasses and a beard and looked a bit special forces, they would have fucking shot me 100 yards before they, yeah. I got within earshot of them. Yeah. But if you're behind the big camera with the big tripod and the big uh, you know, the shoulder, cloth over yeah. your head, then you're a very different prospect. You know, but yeah. You're not likely, you know, you might be an utter, but you're not likely to be dangerous. Yeah. And, and you did... Well, in, in a way, that was the transition right there to, mm. you know, a very different way of working. And you've kind of stuck with yeah. it. And the fact since. that it was slower and the fact that it was, you know, uh, made you think a little bit more about it. The fact that the pictures are so painterly mm. uh, is just a kind of added bonus. The fact that it's slower was mostly because it was really expensive because you can't go click, 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 click. That's, that's, that's 200 quid. Yeah. Right. So you've got to slow down and just think about what you want because you just can't afford to kind of rattle it off. Uh, and and that and that meant that I had to think a little bit more about well, what exactly am I trying to say, rather than um, you know what you do with a digital camera now, which mm. is you hose the fuck out of it, and then when you get them all in Lightroom, you start flicking through and saying, what did I want to say? Mm-hmm. Whereas yeah, this uh, was I a hope I hope I got it before considered. I walked away. Whereas with my photography, it's much more about as if I think about what I want to say. Okay, what's the best time to go? What's the best place to stand? What time of day do you want to be here? Where do you want the light to come from? The left hand side, the right hand side. Do you want it to come into your face? You know, what kind of colours do you want in this picture? And then let's go and make the picture. So it's always turned into a kind of photography where the pictures kind of pre-exist. I always think of it as like kind of bringing in kittens, mm. right? The picture already, already exists in my head. I just have to go out and gather it in as opposed to, you know, with a digital camera where you go out and you make them, you know, you, 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 know, you run around and you, and you click, 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 and, and, you, and you make them happen. Whereas for me, they all kind of pre-exist. I know exactly what it is I want. Mm. I've probably already been to the place and seen it. And taken a compass reading and worked out where the sun is going to rise or where the sun is going to set. Uh, I have a kind of visual idea in my head of what the picture is. I just need to go. And then I'm, in Afghanistan, I remember very clearly, I made these lists. You know, these are my 4 a.m. pictures. These are my 5 a.m. pictures. If it's cloudy, these are the pictures I'll go to. These are the pictures I'll be doing at 5 in the afternoon. These are the pictures I'll do at 6 in the afternoon. Mm. And then, you know, if you if you take that attitude, then you've only got a certain number of shooting opportunities. And, you know, if you're there for 20 days, as far as I'm concerned, you can only make 40 pictures. Right they're all at sunrise and sunset so you've got to use the time really really cleverly to come back with 40 pictures right but then that's all the practical stuff but sort of underpinning that what was the kind of themes that you were trying to work on had you decided i mean this notion of um, ruin that i think you know is kind of quite important in your work mm. was it like did you decide that that's what you were going to shoot that you were going to shoot buildings that were in decay no i think um I, just recently i've become you know i've spent uh, two years thinking about the first world war and the kind of soldiers that were there and what their motives were whatever i think i think my work is intensely english because it's about an english sensibility about beauty and i'm a i'm a grammar school boy that got a scholarship to go to oxford so you know i I carry with me an entire portfolio of thomas hardy 
and Shakespeare and Milton and John Constable and Caspar David Friedrich and Claude Lorraine and Nicola Poussin. It's, it's, it's like a sort of liberal arts... It's, 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 it's like a sort of mirrors and windows through which I see the world. Mm. I, I kind of have to. Uh, it's a sort of inescapable part of being English. It's less so nowadays, but certainly those soldiers during the First World War, there's a reason why they were thinking about birdsong and thinking about wildflowers and thinking about... Because they came with all of that Shakespeare and Thomas Hardy and, and Palgrave's Golden Treasury and the Oxford Book of English Verse. I mean, most English soldiers carried the Oxford Book of English Verse and carried the, carried the bloody Bible, probably. Right. And, and it's not surprising, therefore, that when English soldiers talked about the First World War, they talked about skylarks and staring at the stars and the sunrises. Uh, and German soldiers didn't. Read German, read German soldiers' memories of the First World War. Uh, Ernst Junger's Storm of Steel. And he says, I heard a skylark. It made me sick. Right. Mm. Whereas Blunden says, I had the first skylark of the year. See, his song was so wonderful. It was marvellous. It, it trilled for hours. Oh, yeah, by the way, my best friend Williams was killed this morning. Mm. It's almost like an autistic thing. Like he doesn't have any kind of feeling for his friend I, yeah, because yeah. he's off on this thing. But in fact, it's about using beauty as a kind of shield and a carapace. That's the English thing. The English use beauty as a way to defend themselves against the horrors of the world. Mm. Uh, and they place this beauty between themselves. And I never really realized at the time that's what I was doing in Afghanistan. Why was I the one that was shooting things, making it look like a 17th century painting? Well, you were also in the, in the golden to, sunrise and the rest of it. Were you try, trying to use beauty as a way to sort of sneak the, the, the politics in to the unsuspecting uh, um, viewer of I, the image? I thought I was. But what I think what I've kind of realized, you know, in much later years is that the sort of first thing that I, one of the first things I ever did in my entire career was I went to Rwanda uh, just after the genocide. And um, and the, the things that I saw there were just horrible, beyond imagining. And it was just, um, uh, just not the crap out of me. And um, And I was quite young. And I was completely unprepared. It just... At the time I came back and I was fine, and then about six months later I just fell over. And it was just awful. And it was a, it was a full-on genocide. I mean, there was churches with 2,000 dead bodies in them. And, I, and you just get on a plane and you just change in Paris and you hop off and you... Like, you'd be there at four in the afternoon, the day you leave the house, you know. Mm. Start the morning in Hackney, end the day in a fucking mass grave in Kigali. Um, so that was your first I, experience of... Pretty, yeah, any kind of... Of anything like that, really. Awfulness. Yeah. yeah, and it was like real plunge at the deep end, you know, and the damage that it did to me, I, I kind of, you know, smothered it all and walked away from it, whatever. But I think, I absolutely think that is integral into why was I walking around Afghanistan photographing the sunrises and the sunsets and, and, and shepherd boys and invoking ruins and, and Claude Lorraine and Nicola Poussin was all a way of kind of dealing with the, the horribleness, the, 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 you know, the awfulness of the destruction. And I think that's a very, very English response. It's exactly the same as these soldiers in the First World War, standing on the fire step, waiting for an attack coming out of the dawn at 4am. What is there at 4am? There's only the sky, there's only the nightingale. It's the only bird that sings at night, pretty much. And so they write acres of poetry about it. Mm. You know, read Sassoon, read Blunden, read any of these uh, survivors' memoirs. And it's all about watching clouds formations, watching stars, what, listening to birdsong, 
They all became amateur botanists. This is soldiers who were in the middle of the most mechanised, industrialised warfare the world had ever seen. A place of poison gas, the invention of the tank, machine guns, mass slaughter, hundreds of thousands just being vaporised by artillery. And, to, and their memoirs are about nightingales. Because they're trying to grab hold of whatever some, tiny yes, little shred yes, of Yes, and, and place they... it between them and the horror. Yeah. Like a shield, like a like a like a yeah, like a kind of protective cover, like an amulet or something. Yeah, beauty is an amulet, and that's why you know the, I think the British are particularly uh, particularly good at that because we've always done it through our histories. Mm. We've always done it through our histories. It's not particularly a French thing. Uh, if you go and see the British cemeteries in northern France, the the you know the British built twelve hundred cemeteries in northern France. The French, who had twice as many losses as us, built I think it's forty two. Mm. The Germans built twenty seven or something. The German ones are these massive Gothic, nothing, no decoration, not a flower, nothing grows in there. Just oak trees and slabs of, of, of stone and grass, nothing. To, to decorate a, gra- a grave with flowers for the German would have been histrionic, theatrical. Right. It, disrespectful of the death of a soldier to stick flowers down. The French ones, because they were very skint after the war, are just great big warehouses of the death, massive. Notre Dame de Lorette, 47,000 bodies. Jeff Dyer says, so big it seems to follow the curve of the earth. Uh, whereas the British, the smallest one I ever saw, had 22 blokes in it, mm. with a little wall around it. And they are meant to invoke an English cottage garden, the quadrangle at English University of Oxford College, and the courtyard of an English county cathedral. You know, those are the qualities that are being invoked by the architects. Knowingly, the greatest architects of the world were working on those projects. Lutyens, Kenyon, uh, Bloomfield. Mm. Uh, the, these people were uh, the best in the world and they were consciously invoking this British idea of beauty as a way of protecting ourselves against the horror of the war mm. of, of shielding ourselves that's what those cemeteries are they're shields that's why I find them so offensive mm. that's, what, that's why I'm against this idea of remembrance right what did you do at Oxford? did you do English? geography geography mm. 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 so you were sort of uh, I left after a year oh you did? you didn't mm. finish? why? No. I had, I came from a kind of uh, pretty hard up background in Manchester, posh suburbs in Manchester, but uh, I was outclassed by all those public school boys. Really? And I, and I knew I was outclassed. But you were like a bright grammar school boy who, yeah, who got but, in on merit, right? Yeah, but I didn't have, you know, they'd all had years off, they all had... Uh, these amazing ambitions, they all had this polish mm. that I didn't have. Right. And I so you desperately felt like tried that, to acquire it. Yeah, and you, you must I, have I remember felt I was like working in a chip shop in Manchester to get money to go for, to get pocket money. And, and in between customers, I was reading poetry because I thought, I thought that's what I would need to have when I got there. Mm. Right? I thought those are the conversations I'd be having. Bryce said Visitor was on television when I went. Yeah. And, and, I, and I remember when I came back after the first Christmas, my brother said to me, oh, you've lost your accent. You sound like a southerner. Mm. And I had, I, I mean, I don't have a Manchester accent anymore. Because you were trying to assimilate. Desperately. Mm. I desperately wanted to belong to this incredibly glamorous new club. Yeah. I was spending money like water. I'd run up a fucking massive debts in the first term because I wanted to be like them because I just didn't have enough 
in the bank, you know. I was too insecure in where I was from, you know. Because well, I was just a regular kid from some grammar school. I just yeah. quite good at passing exams, that's all. Yeah. Whereas uh, this guy was like, you know, it was a duke of something. And this guy right. was, you know, his father owned half a Shropshire. And this guy, had, you know, it was writing a draft of his first novel. Uh, and, and this guy, you know. I don't suppose it's changed all that much. No. Uh, Oxbridge. But they talk a lot about, the, a like about sending kids there or whatever. But I'm yeah. worried about whether they've got the kit to it. Yeah, it's really great. Let's take some, some refugee kid from Syria and his parents came over five years ago and now he's gone to Oxford. But I also worry about him a great deal because it's not just about the place. It's about having the kind of tools in the toolbox to deal with that history and, mm-hmm. and that beauty and all that beautiful architecture and these people that seem so knowledgeable and so accomplished. Yeah, yeah, it must have seemed yeah, like my, a, my tutor was also planet. the MP for Oxford. Right. You know, it says everybody seemed to have like another talent. And my, yeah. I remember my tutor said to me, "Now you're here. I want you to do two things. I want you to do your studies brilliantly, and I want you to do something else really brilliantly. Otherwise, you'll be really boring to be around. I don't care if it's like." you know, write a short story that will later become a Channel 4 you know, TV documentary or go to the drama club and become the next generation of, you know, Hugh Laurie and mm. Stephen Fry or whatever. I mean, that's where they came from. Or, yeah. or join the political society and become the next prime minister because the chairman of the, you know, if you look at the list of the chairmen of the Oxford University Conservatives, well, I mean, it's all fucking prime ministers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 20 years before, they were in the, the club, you know, and now they're running the country. Yeah. And, and, the, and the next ones are the next So you've got the of weight of bastards. all that. You've got the weight of all that. And, and dealing and, with that as a kid that had just came from a, from a grammar school, I yeah. was utterly unequipped for it. And those... I drowned in it. I drowned. And and just the sheer beauty of some I don't, of those I don't colleges. Mind, I don't mind that I drowned because I was only eighteen, right? And right. You know, a, when I was eighteen, I was a dick, right? Most of us were, but I, I just and I think I think it's quite interesting how much I sort of wanted to be part of it. That mm. I, I felt so weak. I didn't think I was. I thought I thought I was cock of the you know cock of the heat, but uh, it was about weakness. Mm. And and I and I, I floundered and floundered. It was kind of sad, really. Mm. A kid that had everything, you know, what, what an amazing opportunity, and yet. Uh, it was a bit pathetic. It's only years later that you look back at it and think, well, you know. So I'm kind of glad that I left after a year because I think if I'd stayed, I think I really would have. Well, I don't mm. think I'd like me very much. <laughs> I'd be some twat in advertising by now. You think you or, saved yourself in a way by uh, Due to out. my kind of incompetence, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, because I think it was the, the magic, the juju was too powerful. Mm. No, I can see that. I can imagine. I, I can imagine. I mean, obviously, I, I didn't have that experience, but I can, I can see how it could be, mm. and uh, and probably still is for a lot of people. So, I wanted to actually ask you about the picture that I'm now looking at on your wall, which is the balloon seller, and which is one of your, I guess, one of your most uh, well-known mm. images. Macass. Can you can you tell me about how that picture came to be? Oh, well, there's only one frame. <laughs> Yeah. Well, where did this guy? I mean, did you? Did you? Uh, it wasn't just. He didn't happen to just. Be no, there. I saw them. Uh, they were. They were around quite a lot. I, I saw three or four times. I saw people with balloons selling on the streets. These big bunches of, of coloured balloons. Uh, and it, you know, you'd go past and you'd see them, and you'd think, "Wow, that's you know, there's something in that." You know. But they were never in a very interesting place. And I was like, what am I going to have to do? I'm going to, have to like pay the guy to stand somewhere interesting. That sounds really kind of cheesy and a bit fakey. Um, and then uh, I'd actually come to photograph this building, which was this weird kind of Stonehenge-looking building, but it was sort of the tea house of a... There was a complex there. It had been something like a, one of these Moscow Park of Economic Achievement things that the Soviets had built in Kabul. Mm. So there was like a biplane on a plinth and there was a weaving machine on a plinth and tea houses and the rest of it. And obviously this thing had been shot to hell, but it was obviously this little kind of modernist tea room. 
and uh, and I was just framing up the picture. I had the blanket over my head with the five four. I was just framing up the building, uh, and he he just came along the path in the way, and he was like, <coughs> "Can I?" And I was like, "Ooh, woo, just stand there for me." Wow! So he stood there for one. And then I took the dark slide out of the camera and slipped it back in and took out the sheath uh, and he'd walked off. Right. And so I, that was I it. never got his name, no, wow. nothing. He, he just he just walked past. There's, little, only one, there's one frame without him and one frame with him. Wow. That's a little gift from the muse in a way. Just, yeah. Uh, yeah, those, when those things happen. Yeah. I mean, I kind of, you know, like all of these lucky things, it was some, you know, you kind of make luck a little bit. But, right. uh, but at the same time, it was uh, a real kind of serendipity thing. Yeah. And the sky and, and, and everything was all part of it. And then there was this amazing metaphor about, you know, the solid of this concrete had been picked apart. You know, the, the great the amazing thing about Kabul was it was like a sort of museum of warfare. You could see where different kinds of military effect had had taken on the landscape. So, you know, where the, where the Americans had dropped a bomb, you'd have like a house and a house and then just a great big crater and then another house. And that's a thousand pound paveway laser guided bomb has gone into a building where there's been Taliban. And the buildings across the street have still got, you know, windows in them. Mm. Uh, whereas the Russians, the technology was really, you know, just the Kalashnikov. So a concrete building, all the soft stuff, all the wood panelling, all the glass, you know, all the glazing, all the soft things has all been just pecked through millions of bullets. It just turned all to fragments. It's just blown away. But the concrete has survived. Mm. Uh, and that, I'd never seen that before in a place where you could almost tell the technologies by the evidential forensic trace that was left behind by the technologies. Yeah, yeah. In the First World War, the technology at the beginning of the First World War was pretty much the same as it was at the end of the First World War. So you'd get the same stuff. You know, the battlefields of Passchendaele look a lot like the battlefields of the Somme. There's not really a great difference. But here, because the war has been taking place for 30 years when I was there, something more like 45 years now, uh, you could see these different technologies arriving. You know, when the Russians arrived, the place was just littered with armoured personnel carriers because the Sovs never went anywhere unless they were in the back of a BM-118 uh, pers- armoured personnel carrier. And all the, tel- all the uh, Mujahideen did, fire RPGs into the back of them because they knew the doors were vulnerable and so every one of them's got a hole in the back of it. And there was scattered across the Shamali Plain with these, you know, just so many of these ruins of these armoured personnel carriers. Uh, when the Mujahideen were took to fighting each other, all they had was Kalashnikovs. When the Americans come, there's no Kalashnikovs because they've got no foot soldiers. They've just got F-16s and they're dropping laser guided bombs and, mm-hmm. you, and you just see this amazing thing where there's just all the houses a row and then three of them are missing and there's a, just a huge crater where a, mm. a, a, a guided bomb went in. So uh, that, that was amazing. So you had this amazing hard versus soft because somehow this balloon... This person has put this away somewhere safe under a mattress or somewhere. Something, a balloon that you can destroy it totally with nothing more than a pin. And yet somehow it managed to come through all of the war and destruction. And yet something as hard as stone and concrete is turned into a kind of skeleton. So you've got a colour versus colourlessness thing. You've got a hard versus soft thing. You've got a sort of survive but it shouldn't have done versus didn't survive but it ought to have done thing. Uh, there's a whole series of parallels in the picture, which is the reason why I think it's kind of successful. Absolutely, yeah. I have I, to admit, I didn't notice it was successful. It was really? my publisher, Dali Lewis, ah. who took it out of the pile and said that one oh, goes really? on the cover. Yeah. Wow, wow, yeah, because yeah, Dali published the book. Yes, yes. So are you still sort of partly preoccupied with the nature of modern warfare and, and, oh, yes. and the way that's sort of evolving? And you talk about um, the battle spaces. 
as opposed to battlefield, you know, because it's become... Uh, multi-dimensional, uh, multi-spectral, all sorts. Right. Yeah, you know, war- warfare is taking place inside, you know, computer viruses, inside uh, space warfare, electronic stuff. London has a, a light aircraft that is flying over it every... It seems to be every morning, every evening, the Metropolitan Police have a light aircraft Cessna that drones over this house uh, that I can hear that's uh, presumably eavesdropping on either either mobile phones or possibly Wi-Fi networks. That's where all the warfare is taking place. And mm. I'm, I'm very interested, particularly in that kind of technological mm. uh, well, uh, band, whatever, you know. Yeah. Particularly since the regular warfare has disappeared from view. You know, there's, there's not that much fighting where soldiers with guns right. are shooting at other soldiers they can see with guns. Which is interesting uh, in terms of its implications for photojournalism. Totally, yes, because if, increasingly photography is stuck in... A, a modus that was invented in the mid-30s, you know, with the lightweight Leica and fast uh, black-and-white film, you know, kind of Robert Kappa in close moments. And if you go to Afghanistan hoping to shoot those, it will not exist. It will not happen. Mm. Warfare takes place in special forces, in night raids, so uh, what do you missile reckon? attacks, and in, in increasingly in cyber, where, you know, the... It consists of like breaking into Taliban cell phones and uh, just dropping a bomb on that cell phone frequency. Mm. As soon as the phone gets switched on, we drop a bomb on it. Wow. We, you know. So in 20 years or 30 years' time, you know, there won't be... I mean, it will all happen remotely, I'm guessing, or at least most of it yeah, will. There yes. won't be... Swarm, remote, uh, Anything cyber. to photograph anymore in terms no, of... No, unless we come up with a new uh, photograph. It's interesting that uh, I, I've just been judging the, um, uh, the Eugene Smith... Oh, right. The student okay. part, yeah, of Eugene yeah. Smith. But essentially, all the really interesting photography is coming from kind of like cameralessness in a way. You know that you, in some ways, you know, finally dawning on photographers that you can't use the Canon five D to photograph warfare anymore. Maybe you've got to do it with you know ultraviolet. Maybe you've got to do it through crowdsourcing. Maybe you've got to do it through soldiers' own pictures off mobile phones. Maybe you've got to do it through you know, data uh, data mapping or something like that, but it's 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 like these non-visual visuals, but the certainly cameraless uh, military photojournalism uh, seems to be the way it's going. But it's only now that people are really starting to to, to kind of dawn on them. Mm. You know, uh, if if all warfare is going to take place with special forces raids that take place at night, and you're using a light-based tool, then you yeah, yeah. Right, you've got to come up with a better way of doing it. You went to the Ascension Islands and did some stuff there. Oh, that was a long time ago. Yes, yes. Was that? But you know, and when I came back from there, I said, "Oh, look, they're doing all this eavesdropping." It was like, "Yeah, yeah, right." It's like, and they're using this thing called Echelon, and it goes to computers. It's like, what? Every phone call, don't be ridiculous. And I sold it to an, a German magazine wanted to use it, and they phoned me up and said, "Can you prove all the things that you're saying about these spies?" I was like, "No, of course I can't." <laughs> and they were like, "Well, in which case, we can't run your pictures." Oh, right. Uh, and I got it all handed back to me. Ah, okay. Uh, but you were right, obviously. <laughs> yeah, in buckets. But like at the time, it was like, what, they're listening to our phones? Ooh, Simon, take a rest. <laughs> you, you've lost it. Yeah. Now we all know that that's... Yeah, I'm very, fr- I'm very sorry to say I was rather... Yeah, I was a bit on the money with that. Mm. But at the time, it was like to, no one would believe half the bloody things. I remember going to see The Guardian and they were like... What are you on about? Why would they listen to our phone calls? They can't possibly listen to all of them. I was like, yeah, they can, yeah. Mm. yeah. I photographed the cable. It's a fibre optic cable. It's about that thick. Work out what the bandwidth is. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And work out what the, what, the, what the data transfer rate is of a fibre fiber optic cable that big. Well, it's going into the back of their base, so there must be a reason why they're doing that. Mm. And they've got the computer systems that can wash through it and throw away 
99.99999% and find the one that they do using these computerized keywords. And this systems. is why you, you photograph some some sort of supercomputers yeah, as well. Yeah, I spent a long time. Yeah, I spent a whole year, went off on a whole thing photographing supercomputer systems and electronic stock exchanges and, uh, you know, photographed Hotmail. I went to the computer where Hotmail is, mm. you know, open the door there, Hotmail, there it is, you know. Um, the guy said, I can't tell you what it is that's inside this cage. But there was a label that said Philadelphia Stock Exchange. <laughs> oh, right. Bit of a giveaway. <laughs> yeah. um, and the nuclear weapons tests and, and all the supercomputers that I photographed. Yeah, because I kind of got very interested in that sort of invisible technology thing. Mm. Uh, because it, it, it seemed to me sitting around in an airbase in Afghanistan waiting to be taken out to photograph a special forces raid, which is going to take place at night, and then they're going to deny it ever happened and confiscate all your film, is not going to be a way of photographing the wars of the future. Mm. Another another sort of sort of tangential point is is that I think you've kind of talked a little in the past about the model of kind of you know sending the white Western guy, oh, yes. you know, across you know with his bag of likers, the great white hope, yeah, yeah, the great you know the, the white savior across to uh, you know some African uh, conflict. Mm. Um, that I think, and most people would say, thankfully, is is perhaps uh, mm. you know in decline. What, what what do you have to sort of say about that? Do you think that is the case? Uh, oh yeah, totally. And thank God it's gone. Yeah, I mean, I I, I spent a lot of time with Afghan photographers. Or I used to spend a lot of time with Afghan photographers, and it was amazing that they, you know, they they found it profoundly insulting because they know how much a plane ticket is, and they know how much it costs in that hotel, and they know how much they're being paid, and they know how much the security guard is. So, and they were like. Why do these American magazines hate us so much that they right. won't use us that they'd rather pay $6,000 to get this guy here? And then when he gets here, he employs us at $150 a day. And then his first question is, what's going on? Yeah. It's like, it's a fair question, well, isn't why, it? Why do you know? And, and there was a time when, when an, you know, a British or an American picture editor wouldn't know about those photographers out there. But now they are present they exist because of instagram and internet and the rest of it. you know you know about them they've got websites they've got presence so you know okay in the 1990s you wouldn't know that there was a photographer in congo even if they were great you would just would simply wouldn't know that they existed whereas now there was an Amer- there was an israeli invasion of uh, gaza in 2009 was it 6 9 cast led yeah. and, and 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 gaza was kind of closed and they were all all the journalists were outside on the on the sand dunes couldn't get in you know and they were forced to use Palestinian photographers inside Gaza. They were forced. It was the only way to get in. And they were fucking great. Mm. And I and they were all astonished how good the work was. Yeah, because they know why the wouldn't place it be? Why yeah, wouldn't why, it be? It's like my fucking school got bombed. That's my shopkeeper. <coughs> I speak the language. These are mates of mine that are in Hezbollah. Of course I'm a better photographer than sending Simon in. And Simon goes, uh, anyone know which ones are Hezbollah? Of course they fucking don't know. They're no. not going to tell me, are they? Not in a million years they're not going to tell me. And so of course really, their work was yeah, great. And it was kind of astounding why, how good it was. You right. know, And all these were like, wow, you know, you can use a Palestinian photographer or a Syrian photographer or an Afghan photographer and the work will be really good. And, bingo, double bonus, costs a tenth of the price. Right. Because yeah. you don't have to fly me halfway around the world and put me in a five-star hotel. Or James Natchway or all these people I worship when I was a photography student. Mm-hmm. You know, well, a lot of McCullin, us did. Natchway, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And, and, and they are good, but it isn't rocket science. And if you have well, a certain it's, it's level of... Well, more important of... than that, it's about, it's about your viewpoint. Go back to that thing about right, right. photographing Afghanistan through the slot. You know, no Afghan photographer would ever photograph another Afghan through the slot of a tank. It just, it just would not occur to them. You would photograph them from inside their homes or, you know, from the things that they'd, 
the things that they fill their lives with, you know, and you fold them around in their lives. And it seems to me that you, you've you've got to get out of the tank if you want to photograph the place. You've, you've got to walk around the streets of Kabul. You've got to find some way to do it. Find somebody that can keep you safe. Find some friends. Find a, a method of working. You know, some tactics. It's not that hard. You mm. know, you just have to, you know, you don't ever go back to a parked car. Car drops you at one place, you walk to another place, car picks you up and you leave. You don't go back to a parked car, that's asking for trouble. You know, mm. things like that. Don't go back to the same place twice, two days running, leave it three days and then go back or something like that. You know, so it was it was possible to do. It was really dangerous and it was uh, required a lot of careful thought and some very, very lovely Afghans that helped me do it uh, and uh, trust. Mm. But you showed at least that you can it can be done that way, and uh, you know. Yeah, I wouldn't recommend doing it now. No. <laughs> uh, well, um, yeah, no, I would recommend doing it now. Mm. But you'd have to different set of tactics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and there are people living there. There's even you know some people, some foreigners living in Kabul. So yeah, it is doable. Mm. But you'd ha- you you just need to have the right tactics for it. But the problem is, people are too fucking lazy to think out the tactics. And then what they're offered is, hey, drive to Bryce Norton, you get on a plane. We'll fly you to a base, we'll give you some food, we'll give you some Wi-Fi, we'll show you where the hot showers are, we'll send you out a helicopter, you'll get those prize-winning pictures, you fly home, you'll be back next Tuesday, how about it? Right? Yeah. You go, well, for, great, yeah. Right? Yeah. And that's what the embedding system was. It was just a fucking lazy fucker's way to get to the war. Yeah. And so everyone fell for it. Everybody fell for it. So that, that's, that's what kind of pissed me off about that. Mm. But I think it's also a, a thing about attitude. You know, when I, I was acutely aware that when I was in Kabul, it was a dangerous place, but it is also a place where four million Afghans take their kids to school and they worry about a promotion and they, you know, try and keep themselves safe and sort out the family problems and the rest of it. And if you can spend as much time as you can with that, you're bound to get a much better view on the world. I'm not an Afghan. I'm never going to pretend that, you know, to wrap a towel around my head and I'm Mm -hmm. one of them. That's not the case. But at least you can occupy somewhere in between rather than sitting inside a tank photographing through nine inches of green plexiglass. Yeah. It's just a dreadful, dreadful place. You know, how how many times do you see a picture of Afghanistan shot through the back of the helicopter you know, as it swoops through with the tail gunner, you know, yeah. on, the, on the ramp. A zillion oh, times. Fuck, I hate that picture so much. Yeah. Because, not because of it's a bad picture. I hate it because of its its optics, you know, its, its viewpoint onto Afghanistan. Afghanistan has this place which is hideous and dusty and wild and uncontrollable and unknowable. And the only thing you can do it is shoot it. Mm. So what are you working on at the moment? <laughs> Escape. <laughs> What's your plan? Have you got have you got something in the pipeline, or you know, I'm where doing, where are you at with with your work? Uh, I'm doing some stuff with um, with uh, with my balloon. Oh yeah, uh, which is a very beautiful light. Uh, doing some editorial work. I've mm. never done much advertising, unfortunately, so that's never really come on my horizon. Never done any corporate work. Spent a lot of time thinking about Instagram. I'm trying to think of what you can do with it. Right. Uh, and how it works and under the hood stuff mm. uh, about how people this horrible word monetize it yeah yeah yeah. well exactly that's something we all need but, to you know websites like like to know.it uh, and things like that um, and influencers and how that thing works interests me a great deal mm. to be honest the last couple of years I've been trying to not do photography and I've been trying to write television programs oh really because I don't really see a future for me in photography. Really? But I would like to try and make television programs, but they're programs that I present. Mm. But it's just like me talking about stuff that I'm like, interested in for right. now. And I think, and I, I like the idea of a TV format, you know, that sort of BBC Four ish kind of, you know, one hour documentary thing. Uh, 
because when you when you when you produce a, a book of photography it's much it's a paring down process you know you go with loads of research and loads of great ideas and then you have to bring it all down to 40 pictures or 60 pictures and you know it's very very limited a gallery show mm. you know you got, you got enough room for 15 pictures so what are you going to it's it's about reduce 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 edit edit slice 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 less 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 a tv program of an hour is about I have, I have some feelings about some metaphors about the First World War. How do I bring that up and out and build and add and add to make an hour's worth of TV programme? How do I add layers onto it and put more research and more sophistication mm-hmm. and, and bring in more voices and, and, and more clever ideas? It seems to me like it's a kind of build out rather than a pare down process. Right, right. And I'm yeah, because there's a lot of... Quite interested in that. Yeah, that's a lot of time to tell to tell a quite a, it's a, a lot complex yeah, story. yeah it's when I mean, it's like this podcast you know it's like a lecture or something it's you know? long form it's it's very long form yeah even more long form than writing fifteen thousand words in, yeah, a, yeah. In, a, in a in a new yorker or something i think so uh, i like the idea of that but rather than writing long form journalism it's visual yeah uh it's uh well so, i i'd look forward to seeing that i'd watch that if you if you if, you, if that well, happens, I, I made it i made it i spent a, nearly a year and a half making a program about the first world war uh, and we even got to a fairly good edit of it all. You know, it was an hour-long thing about remembrance and mm. the meaning of remembrance. Um, because of the uh, centenary of the yeah, end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this was like a year and a half ago I was yeah. working on this. Uh, and we got very, very close to selling it, but oh, it didn't happen. got squeezed out a bit too late and a bit too political, to be honest. That's the problem was to make it interesting. It was very political, and I think in the end there was some nervousness about it yeah. being a little bit. Too I mean, I I, I know like, quite a few people working TV, and I think it's another it's another world which is pretty tough and yes. ruthless, and you know, dog I'm eat sure. dog, a bit like photography. I'm sure it's no uh, no Elysian Fields, but yeah. um, I'm kind of interested in sort of trying to see what I can do there. Mm. Well, that'd be brilliant. Uh, but I don't know whether there's any appetite for it. Mm. So I've 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 I think I've written three now, uh, three different ideas each of which was about sort of six months of reading and stuff, but I haven't managed to make a properly made programme that's managed to get on air yet. That's interesting because what you've, what you've got to adopt there is a kind of beginner's mindset because as a yes, photographer, no, you're it's like when, it's like when I was 23, yes. You know, so spent, it's, it's very interesting that at your stage in life, you can be back to that beginner's mindset in the, in the sense that you're in a world that you're not no, familiar with. No, it's more like when I was twenty-four and I was shooting. You know, I was doing project work that never saw the light of day, yeah, but yeah. it just sat in my portfolio, and it was the thing that people saw when I tried to get day jobs yeah. on the Guardian, whatever. Yeah, so it's much more like that. Yeah. But I, I never really thought that I wanted to be a photographer for my whole life. I rather, rather despaired of these photographers that you know, like Cartier Bresson. You know, made a picture when he was twenty-five, and then by the time he was seventy, he was still making the same pictures. I, I don't, I don't want to be that guy. Mm. I don't want to be that sort of TED lecture. Mm. sort of you know sum it all up in 20 minutes you know everything I've ever done sort of thing you know yeah yeah uh, I'd quite like to have a go at some other stuff why not and, and the artists that I've you know you admire are the sort of David Bowies of this world who reinvent themselves reinvented themselves and recast themselves well, you as, as did things that. moved on you already did that once in a way yeah uh, so yeah, pretty much, you, know, yeah. you can yeah. do it again yeah yeah, maybe. I think that's encour- I think that's brilliantly encouraging. That, that's where I find the optimism. You know, I don't. Yeah. When we started off, it was very uh, you know, d- you know, I'm down on photo books and I'm down on artists and all the rest of it. But it's because I, I just see that as very limiting. You know, yeah. quite frankly, the easiest thing I could do is knock out another photo book and have some shows and sell a few prints and right. put stuff in black borders and you know, make a little hardback book. I could fucking roll that out in six months' time. It would be a piece of fucking cake. Yeah. And I'm sure some prick would publish it, and I'm sure some fool would show it too. But 
the reason why I'm optimistic is because I, I, I'm trying to I'm trying to explore some new territories and, and make myself kind of young and you know the vulnerability that I had when I was 25. Mm. But that means that you've got to be pretty honest about where the current medium is not going. You know, because I, I never became a photographer because I wanted to be an artist. I became a photographer because I wanted to change people's minds about stuff. If the product that you're showing is a show which is seen by, you know, 9,000 people and a book which is seen by 1,500 people, you're not changing people's minds. You're just preaching to the choir. Uh, and, I, and I, you know, I, I never wanted to do that. Yes, I want to sell a print for 10,000 bucks because it allows me to go to Afghanistan for six months. Yes, yes, I, I still have to do that kind of shite. But that was never my target audience. My target audience was the magazine spread that's seen by a million people or, mm. the, or the internet thing that's got a million hits on it or the Instagram thing that's got 150,000 followers because then you can really start to feck with people's heads and start to change their mind. But that's why I became a photographer, not to make a fancy art book and win a fancy art prize. That was just a vehicle to get to make more trouble. Mm. Well, I hope you keep making trouble, Simon. I'm, 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 I'm so grateful that you did, did this chat with me. I know that it's not something that you necessarily uh, would be particularly natural, up for. Uh, yeah, space. But although you say that, and I just think that it's been brilliant. So I know the listeners are going to feel the same way. Thank you so much for chatting, Simon. Well, thank you for your time, man. Brilliant. Mm-hmm.